a podcast all about films. Um, we are going to do something a bit different this time around. Uh, we are going to take the listeners' questions, and we've been asking for questions all week on various platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and the like, and people have been sending them in. And uh, I'm Joe Gastineau, and I will be answering said questions alongside uh, the mighty fine Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Very well. I'm looking forward to this episode, as I've like I've dubbed it the ASRSA episode. Oh, it rolls off the tongue beautifully. Yeah, uh, or Asursa, yeah. which I, I like because it sounds like I'm saying something backwards. Yeah, 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 it does. And I can actually flip this and see what you've said forwards, <laughs> if that's uh, a thing. Um, so, yeah, we've been sent a variety of questions from everyone um, all across the road. We've got, you know, dozens of listeners, uh, and uh, they've all been getting involved. Uh, some of the questions are serious, I warn you. Uh, some of the questions are fucking ludicrous. But we are going to attempt to answer them with vigour. Uh, Ed will try and do a sensible answer with uh, facts and uh, kind of discourse. I will attempt to make jokes. Um, but I thought, Ed, we would start with the most serious question we got asked, just so we can kind of set the tone for this podcast, because, uh, you know, it's a very important tone. Um, so the first question um, that I'm going to ask is, who would win out of a fight between Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, played by Alec Guinness? That's very specific, they've asked that. And Patrick Swayze's character in Roadhouse. Well, I think the first thing we need to consider here is in which universe are they battling? Because if it's happening in the Star Wars universe, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi has uh, an advantage because obviously he has the Force on his side. I mean, he wouldn't use it for malicious purposes. I'm sure he'd want to have a a, a fair fight against Patrick Swayze, but he always has that ability. Uh, Whereas if it's taking place in our world, the Force doesn't exist. Yeah, and he, he's basically just an old man in a, in a dressing gown. Yeah, and uh, Patrick Swayze is a man who quite literally rips people's throats out in yeah. Roadhouse. I did with... say that tone is very important, and the tone of Roadhouse goes like very wrong, in, in in my opinion. The film is quite kind of like funny, and like it's not comedy, but it's quite you kind of laugh at it, and then there is a point at which he does rip a man's throat out. At which point it, it becomes a little harder to laugh. Uh, yeah. I mean... You can still laugh at the audaciousness of a film that just kind of says, ha-ha, a bit of knockabout knock fun, and then... Ah! Yeah, I thought you meant it made it harder to laugh because the guy had no throat. Well, yeah, he's not laughing. No, no, he's uh, very much dead. There was a thing last year, wasn't there, where... Was it Bill Murray would ring John Travolta every time Kelly Preston's sex scene was on <laughs> Roadhouse on TV? <laughs> I don't know, I've not heard of that, but that's amazing. <laughs> no, yeah, he, so if he was ever in a hotel and he was just like surfing the channels and Roadhouse was on, he'd watch it until the sex scene came up and then ring John Travolta to tell him your wife's getting nailed on on, on TV. That's the fourth of the best Bill Murray story I've heard. Yeah, and there, there are many. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, in the Star Wars universe, Swayze's got nothing. Absolutely nothing on Guinness because he'll just whip out the thing and probably chop his hand off and then, you know, do a quip. But uh, the, he, yeah, he hasn't really got anything apart from a very high trouser line and a mullet. Yeah, the only the only way he'd have an advantage there is if they go to the and this will reveal my nerdism from a, uh, a young age when I used to read all of the Star Wars expanded universe novels. Uh, if they go to the planet where the Force has no effect, because there's a uh, a trilogy called the uh, the Admiral Thrawn trilogy where at one point 
Luke is stranded on this jungle planet where he can't use the Force. So if they go there, then I think uh, Swayze's uh, overwhelming masculinity would give him the edge over Alec Guinness being an old man trapped on a jungle planet. Ed, I just lost all respect for you there with you saying there's a trilogy of books in which they go to a jungle planet where there's there's no force. Well, that's it's only only that's only a large segment of one of the books. The whole, not the whole trilogy. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that would be crazy. Um, so, do you think we've settled that once and for all? Uh, I think we have just raised more questions uh, through that answer, um, but I think that. Uh, uh, unless there's that very specific situation, I think it does depend on the universe. Uh, unless Patrick Swayze can somehow trick Alec uh, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi to go to that planet, and to be honest, Obi Wan in the like prequel trilogy gets tricked to going a lot of places and is mm. generally kind of a dupe. So I think he probably he probably would have the advantage there. Uh, so actually, I think Swayze would win in all situations really, then because I think he's he's wily. Yeah. He's. Uh, got the fabulous hair yeah. and uh, the ability to rip a man's throat yeah and I think that given that both of these great actors have passed on mm. um, this fight could very well be happening in the great battle lot in the sky <laughs> probably over a loose donut possibly. I'd like to, I, I, that is my fondest dream and hope. okay what's our next uh, question Ed I'm, we're glad we've just got that one out of the way you know we just, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll breeze through it what's next um, the next question is how do some actors carve out consistently good uh, careers where some flip-flop from shit to good for example Ryan Gosling or early ghost Joseph Jennifer Love Hewitt <laughs> for example Ryan Gosling or early Joseph Gordon-Levitt is this a good sight into scripts or is it just common sense a good agent having principles knowing the right people or just luck also why is Robert De Niro still working and popping up in random tap like New Year, New Year's Eve should he not be just chilling out now and not entirely ruining his ruining his rep? It's it's really just a question of perception, isn't it, about whether people's uh, careers are consistently good. I mean, the two examples given there, Ryan Gosling and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I mean, their CVs aren't, you know... Not spotless. ...without blemish, are yeah. they? I mean, Ryan Gosling was in the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and Hercules, Young Hercules. Young, young Hercules. Hercules. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in... Um, uh, Halloween H2O I believe wow. uh, early on um, and he was also and, and even when he was like doing his good stuff you know uh, he was in the G.I. Joe movie is that right? Yes he was he was uh, the one who's I get. I I think he's the character whose face you never see but I might be completely wrong there Right. so it, yeah. it could very well just not have been him but I, think, I imagine if you cast him he's probably going to show up at his face at some point yeah and I mean so, so really it's about I mean they, you do have actors who do go on kind of runs of form, don't you? And and, mm. and Ryan Gosling and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are the kind of actors that will have success in a certain type of film, and that will kind of just make them more visible to other directors making similar types of film or other projects. So it stands to reason that if you make an interesting film, then your next project will probably be an interesting film. I think there are some actors, like De Niro's a good example of one, you know, who had just like a staggering run of form. Um, through sort of like the late 60s through to the to the even to quite as late as the mid 80s really because you know when he was doing something like um, like King of Comedy mm-hmm. um, and then you know the, the the early 90s were you know he was still doing really good stuff with Scorsese I'm not a huge fan of Cape Fear but his performance in it is, is indelible it's kind of hard to forget mm-hmm. um, and then but then you know right up until Jackie Brown or Ronin in the late 90s 
he was still doing great work. I think it just comes to a point where someone essentially has reached the point where they're perhaps not constantly trying to top themselves. Maybe they kind of accept that they have done the best work of their career and that there's not really much more they can do. I think you can see that with someone like uh, De Niro, Pacino and Nicholson, who all Mm. between them kind of have a claim to being sort of the greatest actors of their generation, but all kind of suffered that that late career um, kind of slump. Mm. Usually, certainly in the case of De Niro, of... um, Pacino and Nicholson it was after they won their like their last Oscars yeah it's kind of once you've got the I think once you get that sort of acclaim from your colleagues then it's probably a case of kind of thinking well I don't really need to try that much anymore mm. do you think uh, De Niro by turning up in you know the odd ship film um, is ruining his rep or do you think that his rep doesn't particularly mean anything anymore I mean I, I noted that I watched Silver Linings Playbook the other day and uh, I mean I know you're not a particularly big fan of the film um, but he was very good in it I thought mm. um, but he that's really the last time the last time he turned in an actual performance was Jackie Brown which was kind of 1997 98 is that right? Uh, 97 yeah so that's 15 16 years ago um, so, you know, I've only seen bits and pieces of his work in between, but I don't view Robert De Niro as someone who's particularly ruined their rep because they've always got that body of work that exists that isn't going anywhere. And it, I don't, I don't know how many Rocky and Bullwinkles will have to happen before that reputation is kind of sullied beyond doubt. Is that is that fair? Uh, I think that's certainly true of a certain generation. I think it's a, it's a generational thing where people sort of our age who sort of grew up knowing De Niro as this kind, you know, from, you know, obviously we weren't alive to see Taxi Driver in the cinema, but growing up, you know, you talking to me, that was like an iconic thing that const- that people were constantly referencing, uh, or and, you know, sort of Raging Bull and, and, you know, the great work he did with Scorsese, but also, you know, the stuff he did with De Palma uh, mm-hmm. and throughout his career. You, you knew him as this guy who was... Uh, still sort of in this really fertile period and, and maybe only just kind of starting to enter that period where he was starting to do just, just work to get paid. Uh, whereas I think there's a generation, the generation of people who are like kids now will mm. know him just as the old guy in the Meet the Fockers films. Yeah. And, you know, they won't kind of feel compelled to check out his early work. People will still know him as a great actor going forward because obviously there'll always be people who wonder, you know, what is this film Taxi Driver that people keep talking about or Raging Bull but I think there's the, the the danger would be that there would come a point where he would be known primarily as an old man who was in sort of these mainstream comedies as opposed to someone who kind of helped redefine the nature of what it was to be a movie star yeah I think someone be... someone is really interesting to talk about alongside that is Christopher Walken Christopher mm-hmm. Walken just likes to work and like mm. his films I mean not so much now but his films pretty much consistently were either amazing or terrible he would he, he would just turn up in anything yeah but even he was he's, he's got such a weird energy that even the terrible films that he's in it's he's still quite fascinating to watch and mm. but uh, like he yeah he strikes me as someone who doesn't really try that hard anymore the last time I can really remember him putting in like a performance that kind of knocked knocked me sideways was um, Catch Me If You Can 
where he was playing Leonardo DiCaprio's father and he was so sad. Mm. He was such this sort of bitter, sad, tragic figure. And there was none of the there was none of the kind of ticks that kind of make that people think of when you think of Christopher Walken. Like mm. he still had his 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 physicality and his slightly strange mannerisms, mm. but there wasn't the sense that he was just going through the motions. He was really crafting this character. I think it's just kind of yeah. He, I think he's always interesting, even if the films he's not in aren't. Where I think the, with De Niro and, and Pacino, um, less so Nicholson, just because he's not really in stuff anymore. He he kind of doesn't show up in films very often. No. Uh, those guys, the pro- the problem with them is that they'll show up in films and they they won't even be interesting. Yeah. They won't give performances that that will you'll remember in sort of like five years time. Let alone for the like the entire history of cinema. Yeah. Um, um, just to say, Crystal Walken's best performance of all time. Um, the last time I can really remember being knocked sideways by something he did was uh, Wayne's World 2. He's great in that. Yeah, he is great in that. Um, right. Okay. I think we've solved that particular <laughs> question. Um, um, what else have we got here? Um, what is the best and or worst stand-up crossover of all time? So the kind of uh, crossover attempt for a uh, established stand-up comedian to cross over into films. I think the the one that leaps to mind as the best straight away is Forty Eight Hours. Mm, which, definitely. Uh, because <clears throat> that was Eddie Murphy, you know, young, still like right off of Saturday Night Live, maybe even still on Saturday Night Live, and he just kind of appeared on screen and sort of exploded, mm. you know. He was this this sort of volatile, unpredictable sort of bundle of energy that was, um, you know, even now is he's he's so sort of such a captivating presence on screen in, in what could have been a fairly standard sort of mismatched um, crime drama, not really like a buddy cop drama, but that's essentially what it is. But one yeah. of them happens to be a criminal. You know, that could have been any other actor. They could have played that much more straight than it is. Mm-hmm. But he and, and you know, like people say about um, Beverly Hills Cop was meant to be uh, Phil Sylvester Stallone was meant to be a straight action movie, and then he got cast and it became a comedy. Yeah, and I think you see a similar sort of thing in Forty Eight Hours, where he just brings something to the role that no one else could have. And I think that mm. there's hardly anyone really who kind of is of a similar sort of caliber. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting after the last question we just asked, that Eddie Murphy started his career with. 48 hours and Beverly Hills Cop and look what happened to him yeah I think that uh, the answer to this question uh, if he still did stand up obviously he hasn't done it in a while he mm. would be both the best and worst yes um, but if I we mean, talk- in terms of actual worst stand up crossovers um, the ones that kind of uh, leap to my mind uh, uh, I mean maybe some of the Saturday Night Live ones that kind of didn't cross over particularly well I mean uh, it's Kind of strictly speaking, Will Ferrell didn't have the uh, the best um, kind of start to his film career, did he? But I mean, would he be considered a stand-up? I guess. No, I'd say he's probably more of an improv guy. So he's kind right, of okay. all about getting on stage with other people and constructing sort of scenes and and writing, which I think was more that was more of his basis when mm. he was uh, when he was sort of starting out. I think Adam Sandler's probably in the running for it. Yeah, he's but until well, Happy Gilmore is probably still the only film of his that I can actually tolerate. That's a comedy that's not Punch Drunk Love or The Wedding yeah. Singer. 
but he started with that film uh, Going Overboard from like the early the late 80s when he was just starting out which mm. is like a, a, a really really risible comedy that's always in like the IMDb bottom 100 um, yeah. oddly enough not a lot of his other films are for some yeah. reason people really just kind of go after that one yeah, well, there's um, there's a, a slightly more obscure one, but Lenny Henry attempted to make a Hollywood mm-hmm. film called True Identity, where he was uh, forced to hilariously white up to avoid the mafia, and um, that is a truly baffling cultural document. I recommend. Uh, peculiarly, it's not on Netflix or <laughs> or anything. Uh, I think Lenny Henry might have bought all the copies of them, um, sealed them in concrete, and dumped them in the North Sea. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think that the, uh, that one's sadly been lost to time maybe it's, it's worth being re-examined yeah as a yeah. comment on uh, race relations in the early 90s yeah before we get into the tricky areas of race relations in the 1990s um what's the next question ed uh the next question is with streaming services and downloads on the up and hmv in trouble will dvds and blu-rays be the final physical format for home entertainment um that's a good question i think uh, unless there is uh, a next generation of discs for like stuff like 4K um, scans because um, we're around 2K now, aren't we? Of the the kind of pixels uh, kind yeah. of area we're in, um, but you get a lot of, a lot of older films are being converted to 4K scans for cinema, and I wonder whether there's going to be a, you know 4K TVs and whether there'll be um, 48 frames per second will be a, a format to have digitally because those things would be I presume very difficult to stream yeah I mean even stuff that's shot sort of like on a shot with film or sort of standard definition if you watch it on a streamed on a, a decent quality telly mm-hmm. doesn't look it doesn't look cinema quality I mean it'll, no. often, it'll often look good but the, the, the very nature of it being digitised means that it's not going to be even as good as watching it on a DVD. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the thing with pretty much anything sort of technological is that if it's not good now, it probably will be at some point. Mm. And I, I could foresee, I could foresee in the future, like the streaming being good enough because you know the, the the rate of the of data available to computers and on the internet sort of doubles every couple of years. And essentially, you know, things get sort of. Uh, exponentially sort of faster and more powerful as as we go into the future mm. so i could see it happening as as far as the um the business side of of whether or not there'll be more physical formats than blu-ray i think the problem with that is that blu-ray has taken a very long time is taking a very long time to overtake dvd in terms mm-hmm. of sales in terms of market share I think last year the the percentage of Blu-rays sold to DVDs was um, sort of about 25%. So it's it's go it's gradually increasing, but mm-hmm. the problem there is it's it's less increasing because more people are buying Blu-rays than less people are buying physical media in general. Like sales have you know they fell for a few years during the worst sort of period of the economic troubles and and are still very sluggish. Mm. So I think there is there's less of an impetus for people to actually develop the next generation thing because they're still invested in trying to make Blu-ray the dominant format for home entertainment, which I think we're probably still five to ten years away from because the prices aren't going down, you know, super quickly. No, no, you're right. Um, 
how much longer, Ed, uh, will it be before the superhero movie bubble bursts? I think that there is there are two films coming up within the next sort of eighteen months that are going to be the sort of the big litmus test for the the superhero bubble, which is obviously riding high at the moment on the back of um, the performance of The Dark Knight Rises and The Avengers. The first of which comes out in the summer of this year, and that's Zack Snyder's uh, Man of Steel, mm, which is exciting. which you and I have voiced some trepidation about in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why I think I think that there are two distinct trends which can really be marked by the the, the Nolan approach and then the Marvel approach. On the Nolan side, is this kind of trying to ground everything in reality and making everything very dour and serious, mm. which uh, it, which works to a point, but then you kind of get the thing with the Dark Knight Rises where when you have to get the characters doing immensely comic booky things, it just looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that the problem with the Man of Steel is that Superman is inherently a more ridiculous character than Batman. <laughs> yep. Um, but also he's a more boring character than Batman. Um, that's not a, you know, because he was created in, in the 1930s. Um, as, you know, you've read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, and, and it goes into kind of a, a sort of a secret history of Superman in that regard. The idea of him being essentially a golem created by two sort of young Jewish guys to try and sort of, you know, to, to fight Nazis in the public consciousness as a way of fighting back against oppression. And the whole thing is he's meant to be a paragon of virtue. He's not meant to have sort of deep internal conflicts, which mm. works in the the context in which he was created, but makes him really dull in pretty much all other. You know, in, in film he can be a, a, a bit of a a bit of a bore. And I think that trying to make a relentlessly serious superhero movie, a, a, a Superman movie, could really turn people off. I mean, what what do you think about that? Um, well, just a Superman movie in general. I mean, I, I turns turns me off. Um, I'm I'm I kind of the the uh, the earlier kind of camp fun ones. Uh, I can enjoy, but still not like an awful lot. Um, but yeah, I think I think he, the other thing I was thinking was um, we've kind of got to the point where okay, they make a, a you know a Marvel movie about the Hulk or the Iron Man, and then you get the natural kind of progression of that is to make. Uh, the Avengers, we get everyone together. Now, I'll be very interested to see how the, the films, like that, are kind of the solo projects after the Avengers, um, kind of perform. I mean, I think they'll do well, but I mean, will people like Thor two as much now? He doesn't have the Avengers around him. Do you see what I mean? They're, they're making yeah. these kind of team movies, and then we've got a Justice League America. Justice League America is that what it's called? With the that's the same. It's basically the Avengers, but in DC, right? Yeah. I think they, um, I think it's just Justice League now because they they try oh, right. and drop they try and make it more universal. Right. Okay. But all all the all the heroes are American, <laughs> yeah. um, or from Krypton. Um, um, but yeah, it's uh, those they seem to be. That's where it's going to go to. The it's just going to get bigger until it can't get any bigger, and then people won't be interested when it goes back to being a single superhero film. And then the cycle will just start again in kind of ten, fifteen years, and we'll we'll get another series of of kind of comic book films. Um, I think that I mean the bubble burst really after kind of um, the second Batman film for me. Uh, mm. I think we'd probably had the best 
of either. I don't think the Marvel films are going to get any better than Iron Man one or, or Captain America, and I don't think any DC films are going to achieve like surpass what Christopher Nolan's done with with those. So uh, I think I can only see them getting worse, and it's just what's the public's appetite for for bad superhero films? Yeah, I mean even. If it's good, I think there's a, a question of just how much people, how how far people's uh, suspension of disbelief will go. Because like the, the reason why I think the Marvel films have been so successful is they started with Iron Man and kind of they they ground it in grounded it in reality to an extent, but they also you know they made it kind of like lively and it was it was kind of in some ways the polar opposite to the the Nolan films in tone, mm. and they and they gradually introduced the idea of super soldiers and gods and things like that. So that by the, the the point you get to the Avengers, you can kind of think, I can see how we've got here, and then but but at the same time, it kind of takes it so far beyond the idea of sort of quote unquote realism mm. that it's uh, that that you kind of get to the point where you wonder, our audience is going to kind of really follow this all the way, and that's where I think you see in the, in the next couple of years there's going to be problems with something like the Guardians of the Galaxy, which. You know, I, I, I have hopes for because I really like James Gunn. I think he's a very interesting filmmaker. And the the comics are, are, are very well regarded. But at the same time, it's still something that has, as two of its characters, a sentient tree and a talking raccoon. Yeah. Now, those two things, they may be cool and they may be fun. But, you know, how much will a general audience look at that and say, huh, that's not ridiculous. <laughs> and but and the problem and there's nothing wrong with something being ridiculous in a superhero movie because it's about people with fucking superpowers. But the way that the studios have gone is they've been trying they've basically been trying to say people these aren't ridiculous you know these are things that are, are are based in our reality. And when you suddenly go and yeah it's um, Andy Dwyer and the talking raccoon fighting people in space. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the people might kind of struggle with that and then you get into sort of the realms of like you know. Are they going to make a Doctor Strange movie, or you know, is Edgar Wright's Ant-Man movie, which I would be very interested in seeing, um, going to come out, and then people will be like, "You're going to make a movie about a man whose powers are to shrink and get really big." Mm. Those are, you know, they 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 start to look really weird at that. Point. Yeah, and the thing is, is that Edgar Wright's Ant-Man movie could exist perfectly well on its own. Mm. I think it was done with a time. kind of comedic tone, but. At, will they want to make it part of that same Marvel universe in which that character all of a sudden becomes slightly ludicrous against, you know, the characters in the Avengers? Yeah, I think it's it's going to get to a point where they're going to be throwing like hundreds of million dollars at these films that are based on not especially strong concepts or concepts mm. that maybe work if you're combining like multiple characters together but on their own look a little flimsy as as basically we saw with two incredible Hulk movies which didn't really do very well um where you kind of have a character which as the Avengers proved works well as part of a team but you put him on his own then the story's kind of flounder a bit um, yeah at, at one point they're going to start wondering maybe we should not try and turn everything into a movie and that's when the bubble will slowly burst and you'll maybe get it reduced to like a handful of films that are, um, a handful of films that you know are part of established franchises. Like I think that the Iron Man films are going to kind of chug along up until Robert Downey Jr. decides he doesn't want to do them anymore. Mm. Um, and you know, like 
Thor and Captain America will probably chug along for a little while as well. But they'll, they're going to struggle to kind of develop like a second tier of films that can take over those before you get to the inevitable reboot that no one likes. Yeah. I wonder if in my lifetime I'll see three reboots of Spider-Man. I think four. You know, if we're going... if. Uh, if the two of us last to like sort of our seventies or eighties, mm. I think by that point you could be at that point where they've been rebooted for the for like the fourth or fifth time. Wow! And each yeah. time we'll just be like saying, "Oh it's shit!" <laughs> but like with so gravelly, gradually gravelier and, and weaker voices. Yeah, um, I did see a little bit of Spider-Man Three the other day because Spider-Man Three is one I've never seen, mm. and I flicked it over. It was on Channel Five, predictably enough, and. Um, I flicked over to watch the bit where Thomas Hayden Church turns into a Sandman. Mm. Fucking hell, man. What were they thinking? Yeah, the the effects in that haven't aged terribly well. Oh, no, they haven't. They haven't. I mean, the, the effects in any of the Spider-Man films haven't aged particularly well, but especially that, it looks like it's from a Commodore Amiga game or something. It's horrible. <laughs> um, okay, enough of this superhero nonsense. What's, okay. uh, what's the next question we've got? Uh... When did it become okay, and why is it okay for films to be so bloody long nowadays, and why has that happened? Um, good question. Um, when I first read this question, um, I thought, is this just perception? Because obviously, old films uh, were really fucking long. I watched, um, I bought uh, Sound of Music the other day on Blu-ray, uh, and I'm alright with that. Um, and I watched it, and it's, it's actually still got its intermission in the middle, and that film was like two hours 40 or something yeah. now people I mean, uh, Birth of the Nation is over three hours yeah and that's and like that's... the first feature film yeah I mean you know Gone with the Winds very long I mean we could just pluck random examples but I wonder when I was thinking about this and now I've got no I've done no research so um, uh, shoot me um, but um, did in the 80s and 90s see a downturn in the running time of uh, mainstream films with the high concept boom in the action films were was there a return to getting films under two hours and then with the post kind of Lord of the Rings uh, being successful studios realised they can actually put out longer films Harry Potter films were very long uh, even stuff like Django is is, is very long now um, not that that's following the trend of those movies but it's just kind of uh, audiences if they'll sit through a three hour film in the cinema that's successful then the studios are less inclined to try and get the times down I think that there's there's definitely something to that also in terms of the distribution side of things because the thing with the length of films is the shorter the film is the more times you can show it a day the more mm-hmm. times you can show it a day the more tickets you can tell and the, the more money it can make so I think that was probably pushing it a lot in the um a lot when when tickets were cheaper mm-hmm. essentially was that you try and cram in as many screens as possible and when there was less screens as well in cinemas yeah so you could have a, a long epic sort of which would play in sort of limited release and then gradually expand usually you know your, your big Oscar contenders like if you had something like Lawrence of Arabia or Gandhi or stuff like that but, but the whole thing was those films would play for years Literally, mm. literally years they would play yeah. in, in cinemas and people could go and watch them projected in 70 mil or whatever and you know they, it was a big event thing that people could just go and constantly watch and I think that uh, as, as there were more screens it's now possible to fit in you know if you have two screens dedicated to showing The Hobbit you can get eight screenings of it in a day and not interrupt like the rest of the screening schedule too much 
uh, as opposed to before where you could screen in like four a day and that's mm. not very cost effective um, but also there's the whole idea that as or the audience for cinema has shrunk which it has it's slowly, it's um, slowly been going down since the um, since the sort of the, the since the 60s really you know the, the, with the exception of the odd uh, the odd um, you know big huge uh, epoch altering blockbuster you know like a, an avatar or a titanic and you're going further back you know obviously star wars or or um, jaws you don't mm. really get people aren't going to see films as much as as um, as they used to and now it's kind of a case of if you make a film really long and promise spectacle, it's the only way to really guarantee that people will come in. And so even if the story doesn't, like with The Hobbit, doesn't really warrant being three hours long and three films, um, yeah. that's the way you do it in order to make as much money as possible. Yeah. I mean, I've just brought up a little list of the highest grossing films of all time and it's interesting just to see that uh, they're all pretty long films Avatar is a long film Titanic's more than three hours The Avengers is that how long is that I think it's about two hours two and a half two hours forty yeah Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two is long Transformers Dark of the Moon how is Transformers Dark of the Moon the fifth highest grossing film of all time that makes me want to jump out of a fucking window it did really really well overseas God damn it. Lord of the Rings Return of the King, that was interminably long. Skyfall was pretty long. Dark Knight Rises uh, was long. long. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, I'd quit by that point. Was that long? <laughs> um, I, yes. I, I was trying to remember which one that is. Yeah, that one's about that one's about two hours forty. Uh, and then, um, oh hang on, is that the, just the third one? That's the second one. Oh, it's the second one. I've seen that one. Yeah, that's quite long. And then the last one, top ten, is Toy Story 3, which is more than two hours. So every, every single one of those top ten most successful films of all time is longer than two hours. I think also each of those films are kind of from people who are proven and perhaps have earned the earned the right to make those films as long from studios. Because I think in certainly in the 80s there was a big crackdown on directors mm. uh, following... You know, Heaven's Gate and um, One from the Heart and um, 1941. You know, the the, the slew of direct of auteur-driven films that cost a lot to make and didn't really do very well. Yeah. Um, I think there was probably a section of that was like producers just basically going, "No, the film is going to be. It's not going to be stupidly long. The shoot's not going to overrun, or we're going to fire you." And I think that there has been a, a gradual kind of pushback of that where it comes to sort of directors who are either working on such low budgets that it doesn't really matter and you can make films as long as you want to, you know, whatever way you want. Or they are they are people who have like a billion dollars to their name already. Yeah. You know, like Pixar had already made a huge amount of money. So like, I mean, I mean, Toy Story 3 is fairly short compared to the rest of them, but, you know, it's... It's still, I think it's still probably the longest of the Toy Story film. Um, mm. But you know, Peter Jackson had already made two long and wildly successful. I think really his is the most surprising thing is that they allowed him to make the first Lord of the Rings film as long as it was. Yeah. Um, considering that at the time he'd made like The Frighteners was the most successful film he'd made, and that wasn't a very successful film. Um, so I think it's, it, but I, what you see there is people who have kind of like a tried and true um, track record 
commercially speaking. Now, they may not necessarily make good films. Um, mm. You know, I think uh, Cameron, James Cameron's a terrific filmmaker who doesn't make very good films. You yeah. Know, I think, I think like, from a craft level, his films are genuinely, you know, pretty fantastically well put together, but content-wise, they're not always the most compelling thing. But, you know, like, Michael Bay's a dreadful filmmaker who makes dreadful films, but he makes mm. very successful films, so he can make them as long as he wants. Yeah, I mean, there is still built into directors' contracts now um, maximum running lengths and things, isn't there? I mean, most notably, um, Kenneth Lonergan had to bring in Margaret, didn't he, below two and a half hours. That was in his contract. And when he was removed from the editing of that film, didn't Scorsese and Shoemaker turn in a film that was two hours, 29 minutes and 59 seconds or something like that? Yeah, I think it was like, yeah, it was it was two hours, 29 minutes and and, you know, some change. Mm. And it was it was about as it was about as close to the mark as they could have got it. Mm. But yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that's that kind of plays into it. But it's weird that that is the sort of the limit. Two and a yeah. half hours. That's a long time. Yeah, that is a long time. Um, okay, um, let's have another question. Um, different kind of uh, change of tact here. Um, what does Cineworld's purchase of Picture House uh, or the Picture House chain? I mean, for independent cinemas in Britain, Ed. Well, I think this is is quite interesting because whenever you get a corporate merger like this, um, you know, people are very keen to say we're not going to interfere, which is what the the, the Cineworld people have basically said that we're not going to interfere with the way that um, the picture houses run. And uh, I think that that's one of the things that people say when they they're not really in the thick of it yet, because. Mm. At the moment, like Picture House is is doing, you know, pretty well for an independent chain. They've got like 24 cinemas, which is quite a lot for like a small outlet. And this merger allows them to open 10 more, uh, and they'll kind of gradually grow. So in the short term, more people have more opportunity to 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 see uh, independent film, and they'll obviously have support for their distribution arm, which puts out a lot of, of really cool stuff. So I think in the short term, it's kind of nothing but positive. What in in my mind the problem would be what happens when those ten cinemas struggle in their first year as most cinemas will as most businesses will what happens when they are you know what happens if you end up in a situation like with FOP where FOP like bought out a competitor and um, like they had all these shops suddenly and then suddenly they started failing you know mm. will Cineworld then just suddenly start clamping down and saying you're doing this wrong do it this way and, and they'll lose you know lose some of the stuff that people like about them I think that would be my main fear about it because mm. I mean the independent uh, kind of cinema scene in England is kind of uh, I say reasonably healthy um, mm. in the sense that most big cities have got at least one independent cinema and I think pop-up cinemas are things that are happening all the time and and um, film societies are actually on the rise um, what is the the it like on the other side of the pond dead well you get uh, stuff like the uh, the Alamo uh, the draft house cinemas they are slowly kind of growing they're probably the the largest of the chains over here they've, they've they started in um, Texas I believe well Alamo is mm-hmm. kind of a, kind of a clue um yeah. uh, and they, they they've started expanding i think they're opening place they've opened places in new york and chicago and, and things like that in the last year so you have kind of like they're the only like real chain 
as far as I'm aware. I'm sure there are other ones, but they're kind of like the most high-profile leather ones that people know about the most. Otherwise, it's lots of small independent places, uh, maybe that alone, uh, maybe one or two places will be owned in the same city, but those two places will do like fantastically well. Like you've got the Arc Light in in California, which is kind of the place that people go to see art house films in in LA in a lot mm. of regards. Um, the place you hear a lot of people talk about, like uh, you know, like Edgar Wright goes there all the time, and people go there, to, like you know, filmmakers go there to do Q and As and screenings and stuff. Mm. Um, I don't. I and think the, is the New Beverly? Is that the is that the same cinema or is that a different one? That's a different one, but they're they're kind of like the, the two main ones that you always hear oh, okay. about. And, you know, even you know, even people from England, you know, even we've heard of them. So they're clearly in places that are, uh, you know, are, are well known for sort of quality and kind of popular. And but I think a lot of cities, a lot of major cities, will have a couple of art house cinemas. But usually, it's it's very much dominated by sort of multiplexes. But and you'll get multiplexes which will show the odd art house film if they have enough screens. But mm. I think that America is, you know, America is so vast that there's not really. It's it'd be difficult for like an independent chain to kind of have a reach that spans the whole country. Mm. So you tend yeah. to get little pockets in each and every city. So it's really it's reasonably. It's reasonably solid. Uh, I'm not entirely sure on the how distribution is over here. I know, I know that on demand is becoming is making a bigger impact over here than uh, than in the UK, and so I, I think that might be reflective of the fact that it might be harder to get uh, independent films distributed uh, on a big scale over here mm. than it is in England. I think it's interesting that we talked about those kind of cinemas that have a reputation, like the Alamo Draft House is something I know, and I've never even been to Texas, I've never mm. even been to kind of the, the, the kind of southern states of, of, of the US, but uh, there doesn't seem to be, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there doesn't seem to be that same kind of like famous cinemas in Britain. No, That unless... have got a reputation for programming interesting stuff and doing kind of very interesting uh, kind of seasons and things and that and I, there's not really anything that leaps to mind I think the only one that leaps to mind for me well two leaps to mind but one of them I used to work in so I don't think that counts um, I think that is the, the Leeds uh, the, the Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds great cinema yeah it's amazing um, you and I went to see the artist there didn't we when we did we, yeah the, at the Leeds Film Festival that was a great night um mm. Yeah, lovely, lovely little cinema that you know gets a lot of praise. Um, I know it's been that th- th- you know like Mark Kermode's done a few shows from there. They've recorded like live radio shows, which obviously gets the the word out about it. But I, it was one that I'd always heard about even before then. But mm. that was that was like the only one really. Um, or maybe the Curzon would be the other one, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess so. You yeah. kind of there'd be like there's like maybe like a couple. But you know, even then, I think it's more kind of cinephiles like like what we are uh, mm. that probably kind of would have heard of them as opposed to maybe sort of more general awareness. Yeah. Um, have we got any like more fun questions? I really enjoyed that one about Patrick Swayze and <laughs> and uh, Alec Guinness. Uh, we seem to have like been mostly spending this podcast uh, kind of uh, writing the wrongs of, of kind of industry. Uh, trends. Um, mm-hmm. What? What? Have we got any more interesting ones, Ed? More funny ones? Uh, mm, not, not especially funny, but uh, current. When can we expect the Lance Armstrong and Oscar Pistorius movies to come out? Oh, oh, controversial, topical. Well, we've already got a Lance Armstrong uh, movie coming out. We? We've got uh, Bradley Cooper. He's going to portray him. I think is that right? 
Yeah, he's. Uh, I don't know if uh, when exactly that one's due out, but yeah, he's been. He he had been cast. I don't know if they've gone into production yet. Something right. tells me that if they have, they're going to be radically re- rewriting it. Yeah, I think maybe uh, Catherine Bigelow might be the person to, uh, to to deal with this one, given that the ending of her Zero Dark movie, uh, Zero Dark Thirty movie, changed um, <laughs> kind of radically halfway through production. Um, Barack Obama uh, came in with an uncredited rewrite. Yeah. The yep. Um The Pistorius movie. I mean, it's only it's inevitable, isn't it? I mean, uh, is early shout for Daniel Day-Lewis soaring off his own legs to uh, to kind of play the role uh, kind of, starting preparation now in kind of a, a, a spiritual sequel to my left foot yeah my no legs <laughs> and they could well I mean the, the, the thing is the title Blade Runner is already taken um, yeah sadly so uh, I mean I don't want to make jokes these aren't you know this is this is in poor taste to make jokes about this it's an ongoing case and someone's been murdered and it's uh, not particularly funny but it's an inevitable consequence of this uh, high profile case which is I mean I don't know what it's like over in the US but like it's literally every all that the news is about over here it's it's kind of wall to wall and the more exciting elements to me um, not in a kind of titillating case is just seeing how weird the uh, the judicial system is in in South Africa they don't have juries in trials and um, the police officers, the police officers, they will always been taken off the case. I was like, oh, why? You know, is it going to be like a kind of O.J. Simpson thing? They found out he's a little bit kind of incompetent or corrupt. No, he's wanted for seven counts of attempted murder. <laughs> seven. Yeah. Two hands worth. It's uh, it does sound like uh, something that could make for a uh, a, a great insane movie. Like every little step of it kind of makes you think that this is being written by some sort of fever. Screen war, a screenwriter somewhere who's just trying to come up with the most insane story imaginable. Mm, um, yeah. I think in my mind it's, it looks like it's go, it could be like a, a Sid and Nancy kind of thing because obviously that was made not too long after um, Sid Vicious um, killed Nancy Spungen. Uh, mm. uh, hopefully it won't have the same outcome for both parties involved but yeah. um, I think it could it, it seems like something that could have that same sort of quality, something that's obviously very keenly followed by the tabloids and everyone kind of pouring over every detail um yeah i think i i i think it would probably not be like it'd probably be within sort of four or five years i could imagine them making an oscar pistorius movie and the, the worst the worst thing is is there'll probably be some kind of south african straight to tv movie made of it which will be just like even worse you know like when um Kate and Will got married. Do you remember that American straight straight to video or oh, yeah. it was direct to cable uh, kind of knockoff at the asylum version, as it will. Um, there'll be a version of the Pistorius, which I don't think will handle the subject matter as delicately as uh, perhaps a more thoughtful filmmaker. Yeah, I mean whoever hand whoever handles this, and I think you know it seems very presumptive of us, but it's the sort of story that I'm I'm surprised that people aren't trying to option now. You yeah. know, t- that they're just kind of like frantically phoning up. Oscar Pistorius to try and get his uh, consent. Um, you know, I think it's the sort of thing that it would be very hard to imagine people making a really uh, a non-sensational version of it because mm. every because the details of it lend itself to sensation. Yeah, and uh, yeah, every every there's not really. Yeah, I think the the, the, the temptation for a filmmaker is probably too great to to kind of not. Well, to skirt around the issues that the most decorated Paralympian of all time 
shot his girlfriend four times mm-hmm. um, and yeah, she was a supermodel and yeah all that all that other kind of stuff is yeah I don't think uh, it's something that's going to be handled by um, a kind of heavyweight of the Hollywood it's going to be someone who who is a real hack who does a horrible horrible lurid job of this and the thing is we don't know how this case is going to unfold and I can only imagine it gets worse than it already is um, oh cool are you ready to to wrap things up Ed because I've got a, a real heavy hitter of a question to finish with okay right okay are you sitting down for this uh, audience at home Get ready for this. This is going to be some. This is going to be some kind of heavy shit. How come? And I don't know who. We don't. We've not mentioned who has asked um, any of these questions because we don't want to name and shame people. Um, but this one, I really, really wish that I knew who answered this. Um, the question is: Why aren't there more movies made about unicorns? Well, that is a tough one. It is. It's the most serious of questions. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that there are a there is a very limited number of sort of mythological creatures that people are terribly interested in, like from a dramatic point of view. I think that's why most of them tend to be about people who are um, about about creatures that are vaguely human, because it's a bit easier to relate to their problems. Yeah. Because that's why you get you know your werewolves and your vampires and, and mm. your Frank your Frankenstein and stuff like that, where essentially you're you're taking a person like with with human traits and, and emotions and then kind of heightening it and then throwing something monstrous on top of it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with anything that isn't human is that it's kind of harder for people to uh, relate to them. Yeah, and I mean especially, I mean we've just talked about the danger of handling uh, a Pistorius film um, because it's obviously too topical. I mean, in the UK uh, right now, horse meat <laughs> is a big issue. So the a unicorn thing would just be I think that's too soon um, and also I think isn't there a film called The Last Unicorn yeah I think it's a very very sad like kids movie from the I want to say the 70s but it's the only one that leaps to mind as being actually a movie about a unicorn yeah it's the kind of the shower of unicorn movies it's a real it's a real downer wow the shower of unicorn movies <laughs> that's one for the DVD box there yeah. um but yeah, and usually they're there as a plot device, you know, like the first Harry Potter film revolves around um, at one point a character surviving by killing unicorns and, and uh, consuming their blood to stay alive. Um, Blade Runner, there's, yeah, there's unicorns the in Blade one. Runner. Yeah, there's, um, a, there's a unicorn in Blade Runner. Um, I think it tends to be more a case of it's it's something that you can kind of throw into a story to kind of give it a certain flavour. Mm. A, a certain <laughs> a kind of a, a certain flavour of kind of a kind of fantasy unicornness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know how many directors have been around saying, "Do you know what this fucking scene needs? <laughs> Get me a horse with a horn on its head." Um, I think the moment that Daniel Day Lewis uh, has a, uh, a narwhal tusk uh, grafted onto his forehead, that's when the unicorn film will make a comeback. I'd hope to, I'd like to think that Gary Ross fought it while he was making Sea Biscuit. <laughs> yeah, just kind of... that would have been brilliant if, like, Seabiscuit, that had just been like, the, like a prop guy would have been like, I'm just going to stick a fucking horn <laughs> on this thing, stick it right on the middle of its head, and then just, like, just say, what? You know, when it turns up on set, what? I, I can't see anything. What's, what's wrong? It's the 30s! <laughs> Unicorns were around in the 30s, and then they all died yeah. during the war. Yeah, they were massive. Uh, I think uh, someone should go through, um, like, the kind of film archives and just pick films out with iconic horse scenes in and just CGI a horn 
onto its head just to see if it changes the film. Would the searches be any different if <laughs> John Wayne <laughs> was riding a unicorn? Uh, I think uh, he would be a gay icon. Yeah, <laughs> which is exactly kind of what John Wayne would have Stood wanted. <laughs> yeah, uh, would Warhorse have been different had it been War Unicorn? I think uh, the war would have been over a lot more quickly if the uh, the British had been um, riding unicorns into battle. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't have get, they wouldn't have been getting mown down in a tragic montage. They would have just been flying through the air while the Germans were just like grabbing hold of their spiky helmets and going, God, in human. Well, hang, hang on, Ed. You've just said that unicorns can fly. That's ridiculous. Pegasus can fly. Unicorns can't fly. Oh, what, can pe- what can unicorns do? They fire lasers. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if there's any lasers involved with unicorns. I think they're just horses with horns, aren't they? There must be something more magical about them than that. No, no, absolutely not. They're just, you know, it's just a horse with a horn on its head. I guess it's probably much the same, then. I think we might have to have a spin-off episode of this, because we we clearly need more facts about unicorns. Um, and we we, we are wildly to... unprepared. <laughs> yeah, who'd have thought the question on unicorns would have completely derailed this podcast, but it has. Anyway, um, that was fun. Yeah, it was. That was really good. Uh, there were quite a lot of questions that we couldn't get to. Um, yeah. There's at least one uh, which was a question from um, Michaela Livingstone. I'll, we'll credit one person with a question uh, mm. who asked us about uh, digital film uh, versus celluloid and uh, inspired by the uh, by the film Side by Side, the uh, the documentary that's uh, currently uh, streaming on Netflix and which I recommend to everyone because I think we're going to do a whole episode. Basically. So I think we'll probably do that next. So uh, don't fret, Makeda. You will get an answer to uh, that question. Um, and yeah, apologies to anyone who didn't have their question answered. Some of them were just fucking stupid. So, uh, but one but of the anyway. yeah, thanks anyway. Um, um, so we're going to sign off now. And um, one of the questions we did get asked was, what is the shot reverse shot theme tune, uh, which uh, should kind of be playing kind of quietly behind me while I talk. It's actually a old um, kind of uh, folk song uh, about a train crash. It's called oh, wow. the old uh, wreck of the old seven uh, wreck of the old southern ninety seven, um, and it's this one's performed by Ernest J Thompson, and there's lots of other versions. Johnny Cash has done one. You can find it on YouTube. It's a great little folk song, and they name drop it in the Blues Brothers. If you the bit where they go to the bar, um, so enjoy that. It's a good song, and we chose it because it's uh, free of royalties these days. <laughs> so um, yeah, great episode, and um, we'll see you next time with the side by side special. Uh, oh, hang on, that's S R S S B S. Oh man, this acronym's getting impossible. It's madness. Um, So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.